All right. Um, and we and by the way, I don't know if you if I said this in both services this morning, but we had such a great VBS this past week, and so Vacation Bible School went really well. Uh, please make sure you, when you see Tina DeBoer next, thank her and the many other volunteers that participated in that. That was a wonderful uh, gift to our church and to our kids. Uh, if you turn to Genesis 19, we want to read uh, kind of a longer story tonight. Uh, in your bulletin, I did not print out everything because, well, you know, the trees and all. Um, and I also wanted to kind of put the uh, story into bite-sized pieces. So in your bulletin, actually, you have the, the, what I judge to be, and that's just my judgment, to be the most important highlights of the story. And each of those little paragraphs, do you see that, correspond to a different point that I want to make tonight. So I'm really going to be focusing on those verses that are printed, but I do want to read the whole story to you, even though it is a little longer. Uh, we're going to read chapter 19 in its fullness, in its entirety. Okay, so y'all ready? Am I ready? <clears throat> My throat's good? All right, let's read together. Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. So he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the, to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold... I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went up and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of the place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be only jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. So he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. 
And as they brought them out, they said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, or you will be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that you will not, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor, which means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke, like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley... God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he came and lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth uh, to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she rose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. His is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Okay, long reading and wow. Okay, <laughs> uh, lots of depravity in this chapter. This is not the brightest spot in the history of the world, as you can tell. And so that's the reason why I think this passage brings up the topic of God's judgment. It helps us understand judgment. Uh, judgment is real, uh, yet judgment is not something we always take seriously. And yet, we need to take it seriously in order to recognize God's way of escape. All right, those are the three points I want to make tonight. Let me say them again. Judgment is real, if you look at your bulletin. God's judgment's real. Secondly, we don't always take it seriously. Why don't we take it seriously? Thirdly, when we do, what way of escape? What, um, what good does God show to people even in the midst of judgment? Okay? And some of the parts in the story tonight we might not deal with to your satisfaction, but at any point you can ask me questions. Sunday night's very uh, laid back and you can, of course, interact. I may even ask you some questions that I would like for you to answer. All right, so first of all, 
God's judgment is very real. Um, this is from verses 1 to 13. But if you look in the bulletin, I just printed 12 and 13 because really that gets to the essence of it. Verses 12 and 13. The Lord had decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent these angels down to, quote, see whether things were as bad as they seemed. Uh, again, this is not that God doesn't know. I think what this is is a process of discovery for people to understand why God is judging the world. And so this is a critical question. Why does God judge people? Why does he judge the world? Um, that he does is a reality the Bible never denies. But why he does is a very important thing to notice. What does it say there in verses uh, 12 and 13 related to why God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah? Take a look at it, verses 12 and 13. Why does God destroy them? Why does he judge them? The outcry against this people has become great. Um, a previous chapter that we read here on Sunday night says that the people of Sodom, the men of Sodom, were great sinners. They had descended down to a deep level of depravity in what they were willing to do and in how they treated other people and in how they treated God. The outcry of it came up to heaven. Now, think about that. Why, why do you think God describes it that way? We do bad things here on earth, and it's like God hears about it through the outcry. Why is it put that way? He could have said it in a number of ways. He could have said, well, just simply God saw it, because he did. Why does he say, the outcry came up, I heard it, and I went into action to judge? That's good. Yeah, absolutely. This encourages us to cry out to God when we see wrong going on, because obviously God hears it. God hears the prayers of people who are being mistreated. God hears the prayers of people who are seeing evil go unchecked in the world. That's a big comfort, isn't it? Uh, even when the courts of men won't hear the case, God will hear the case. Um, and, and apparently the, the cases were numerous that were coming out of Sodom as people were crying out, asking for help and relief. Uh, why else do you think? That's a great reason. Why else does it say it this way? The outcry came. Yes, that's right. Someone else is recognizing it's wrong. So God has witnesses. Uh, God doesn't judge arbitrarily. God judges according to, to real justice because God himself is the definition of real justice. But also God judges in such a way that's so just that if people really could see it rightly, they would understand it's just too. Uh, which you get in this case and you get in every other case in history where people have cried out in the midst of injustice or some kind of unrighteousness. Our very cries in those moments are testimony, not only against the people that hurt us, but they're actually testimony against us. Because we're crying that God ought to be just and he ought to punish those who are unjust and those who are unrighteous. Uh, which, you know, think about it just a few steps. Wait a minute. I've done things that maybe cause someone else to cry out to God. That's a sobering thought. Um, I mean, maybe you can't think of anything tonight, but 
Give it some time. I know that there are things I can think about where I may have caused someone to cry out to the Lord because I treated them poorly or I did something that was wrong. Wow. God heard those cries. What a sobering reality. I mean, the reason why I think it puts it this way is because God wants us to be thinking in terms of him as a judge. He's the all-knowing judge, the all-hearing judge. He takes every right case. Nothing gets thrown out on technicalities. Uh, No lawyers can come in and find the loopholes. He knows exactly how to judge every situation, and he will. Uh, The Bible, in fact, says that God's justice as a character trait, justice is a character trait of God, is something that he cannot deny. It's not often that you get to say God can't do something. But there are a few times in the Bible where it says God can't do it. For example, God cannot lie. The Bible says that. It also says God cannot change his mind. The Bible says that in terms of truly thinking one thing and then all of a sudden thinking something else. God can't do that because God always knows exactly fully the way it is anyway. Well, another thing God can't do is he cannot allow unrighteousness to be unchecked. He can't do it. Uh, Listen to what uh, a couple of theologians say about God's justice. One says this, that God's justice is his constant and perpetual desire to grant to every individual his due. His constant and perpetual desire to grant every individual his due. That's really the definition of justice that everyone would get what they are due. Now, of course, you've got to ask, well, then, okay, well, what are we do? What, what are people do? How do you find that out? And, and there, of course, have been many debates in history about how to determine what justice is, you know? Uh, even in the history of our own country, I think I see two streams of thought that went into our founding documents, one of which I think is very Christian, the other of which is questionable. And uh, I don't mean this in any disrespect. I, I, I love our country. Please know that. But can I, as a lover of our country, criticize one aspect? Um, in, in our founding documents, there's a great Christian principle. For example, in the Declaration of Independence that says, we are to be given the rights that are inalienable rights endowed by the Creator. That's beautiful. That expresses biblical justice, that... The only way you can know what you're do, what I'm do, what you're do, what you're do, is to ask, how did God design us? What did he design for us to have? And, in that, and that's how you know it's right or wrong. However, in the, some of the other documents of the American founding, and especially some of the writings of some of the other founding fathers, another stream enters in that says, wait a minute, justice is really what a group of people, such as a nation, get together and decide it is for them. The whole social construct theory, the social contract, rather, theory of government that really all government is is a contract between human beings. This is right, this is wrong, we're going to all agree to play along with the same rules. That's also found, especially if you read someone like Thomas Jefferson, you know, he puts a lot of that in. Um, I think that one is deeply flawed. And I think actually a lot of the issues we have today with trying to decide what is right and wrong comes from that one coming home to roost. Because, let me quote somebody else in American history. Martin Luther King Jr. said, this is in his letter to the Birmingham jail. 
He said, uh, the only way I can know if a human law is just or not is by, is by comparing it to God's law. If it agrees with God's law, I know it's just law. If it disagrees with God's law, which he was speaking here about the Jim Crow laws, he says those are not just laws because they do not agree with God's law. That was smart. That was very uh, wise. And I think that was a result of the more Christian side of our heritage. However, today, don't we see the coming home to roost of the other side that says, well, right and wrong is just what we all agree it is. Big problem, we don't all agree on what it is right now. We very much disagree on what's right, right and wrong. And one side says, well, we're just going to force you into submission. The other side says, no, I'm going to force you into submission. And it's just this constant tug of war, one side or the other, trying to fight it out over seemingly every issue. Where the ultimate way to solve that is to understand that there is a creator who has endowed people with certain inalienable rights by creation. And that the respecting of those created rights is what justice really is. And so another theologian says, it's the righteousness of God's own nature which forms the basis of his enforcement of righteousness in the human community. It says this, God's justice is the perfection of God by which he maintains himself over against every violation of his holiness. And shows in every respect that he is the Holy One. God cares about justice and injustice. He cares very deeply because he sees it as a violation of himself. Because when a human is not treated the way they're supposed to be treated, that's the image of God being mistreated. And, you know, just like you probably would not like it if someone made an effigy of you and burned it in their front yard or in your front yard, you would hate that. And you would actually consider it an act of violence against you. Even though they weren't burning you yourself, they were burning your image, you'd be pretty upset, and rightfully so. God is extremely upset when his image is mistreated. And so when God comes to Sodom, he says, I'm going to fix all this because I, can't, I cannot bear it. I will not allow my holiness to be infringed without pushback. Now, in the story, you kind of see just how deep the problem had gone in Sodom. And it really comes from how they treated the angels. These two men, by the way, are angels in disguise. They look like men, but they're angels who visited Abraham first, then they came to visit Lot. What did the people try to do? This is a rated R answer. They try to rip him away from Lot, rip the two men away from Lot, and basically rape him. Like a group of men from the city tried to rape the angels. That is extraordinarily evil, right? I think we can all agree with that. There's nothing good about it. Uh, in fact, it shows, I mean, the very fact that these were guests, well, the fact that they were angels, kind of also shows how deep human sin can go that we'll even treat not only people like this, we'll treat angels like this. And when Jesus came into the world, we learned we'll even treat God like this because we killed him. Right? And so the outcry of justice is deserved here. And the reason why all these sordid details are shared, even the fact that Lot offers his daughters in their place, which is almost as worse to me, at least, I mean, I know we're in the 21st century, so things have changed, but... I would think that even in this era, that was pretty bad, 
You know, that, that wasn't seen as a good thing. Lot had apparently become desensitized to the evil around him. And he offers up his daughters. I mean, thankfully, the angels intervene and strike them all blind before they can do anything. Uh, things are bad, 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 bad. And, and God is, is sharing these sort of details to vindicate his justice to the world. Um, I will judge, and, and y'all, even though you may think my judgment's unfair at times, if you just think about it for a moment and count up the violations, you'll realize I'm right. You'll realize the world needs a judge, more than a human judge. And uh, there, there are many things that um, need to be brought to account that humans won't bring to account or won't be able to bring to account. Makes sense? God's judgment's real, and he judges because he is righteous, and he takes our sin as an affront to his own majesty and his own holiness. All right, now secondly, think about how um, it seems like almost nobody takes it seriously, though, in this story. Nobody. Um, you know, the reason the angels come is to warn Lot, and Lot is then supposed to go and warn all of his family. And so you can see I printed for you verse 14 in the bulletin. This is another key verse of the story. Uh, Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be joking, and they ignored him. That's the first example of how one of these people decides, I'm not going to take it seriously. They just thought it was a joke. Now think about it. Does that ever happen to us? Or people around us that we hear the message of Christ's return and of the final judgment and of hell and heaven and we just kind of joke about it or think it's just a joke or unreal or mythical or fanciful yeah yeah I do I think that that is in some ways that's that's eaten up our society um, now I understand that there probably has been have been times where the church you know and the teachers of the church have overplayed their hand on hell <laughs> where it was just guilt manipulation or, or fear manipulation and I get the reaction to that is well we don't want to talk about it but that is a massive mistake massive mistake it's not the way Jesus spoke about I mean Jesus spoke about hell very frankly I don't think you could ever accuse him of just being a fear monger but he is very honest about it and he didn't really stop talking about it he talked about it from the start of his ministry to the very end he even talked about it after he was raised from the dead. He talked about it constantly. Heaven and hell and judgment. Because it's very critical information. Just in the same way that if you were living in Sodom in this time, it was critical information what those two angels came to deliver to Lot. And you would think it, if you were living there, you would think that's critical information. God's about to rain fire on our city. We're not... If we're really clear about what the Bible teaches, that's actually what is going to happen to the whole world. Truly. Not flood this time, but fire this time. To destroy all evil forever. And that's critical to know. It's critical to know which side of things you're on. And how, if you're on the evil side, which we all are by nature, how we can come over to the side of righteousness. And the side of salvation. 
But like Lot's sons-in-law, we often hear it and we just shrug it off. Oh, you know, preacher man going on again about hell, you know, hellfire and brimstone. You know, that's what preachers do. Or you're just a fuddy-duddy, goody-two-shoes Christian, you know, trying to spoil everyone's fun. No. Uh, I mean, some, some Christians have wanted to spoil people's fun. I think we have to admit that. Uh, not all Christians have held these beliefs well. However, um, there's a difference between not holding them well and holding them with respect and reverence and, you know, um, yeah. And, yeah. Anyway, I, I'll say this, and I don't say this in a way to... A, a while back, I, and this was when I was younger... Um, you know, a young man, and I started teaching school. I, I decided at that point, because I, before I ever had kids, I taught school. And, and, and teaching school kind of gave me a maybe a parental experience before I was a parent. And, and I, I learned a little bit of what that weight is of other people on your life. You know, because I was responsible for these high schoolers all year long. When they were with me, I was responsible. And, and I remember making the decision, I'm never going to joke about hell again. You know, I'm not going to joke about heaven. Every time I talk about it, I want to be sincere. I don't want, there's plenty of things in the world to joke about. There's plenty of material. Any human being has got a lot of material <laughs> that you can laugh at and joke about, including yourself, especially myself, right? But heaven and hell ain't one of them. It's real, and it's serious you know it's not something to joke about and, and I'm not saying that to you necessarily to guilt you I'm just saying kind of as an example of taking it seriously and and learning how to steward this teaching well in front of other people you may have a different way that you God leads you to do that but for me it was I can't joke about it. I can't use the word flippantly I've, I've got to be serious about these topics all right, now, it's not just the sons-in-law, though, that laugh at it. It's other people in the story that also resist it. Y'all quickly, you know, look at the story and tell me, who, who else is slow to believe or slow to take it seriously? As the story unfolds, sorry. Even Lot. I know, you know. Yeah, so first, Lot has to literally be dragged out. Did you notice that? Like the angel has to literally grab his arm and physically drag him out because he's dragging his feet. And then we kind of find out why when he gets out there in the wilderness and he says, I don't want to live here. Lot's a city boy. From the moment he had an opportunity, he picked city over country when Abraham gave him the chance. He's like, I want to go to the city. I like the big city. It's, it's a lot more convenient. God's telling him to go to the hills, and he's like, I don't want to go to the hills. There's a small city over there. Let me go to that. Isn't it small? You know, he says, and, and the angel kind of gives in, and he goes there. Although apparently something happens there that scares him, and he ends up going to the hills anyway, right? So there's Lot. Who else hesitates? Somebody in a big way. His wife, you know, and this is famous, Lot's wife. Uh, Jesus literally one time said, remember Lot's wife. And that was when he was teaching about hell, by the way. He was teaching about judgment and hell, and he said these words, Remember Lot's wife. God is coming back to judge. Don't be like her. Don't, don't look back. Don't uh, be, you know, sort of half in, half out. 
Know where you stand with God before that day comes. Because Lot's wife. She looks back to Sodom. All the stuff she had there. She probably had her dream house there in Sodom. Or whatever it was that was drawing her eye back. She looked back and she died. The fire got her. Which expresses it as she turned into a pillar of salt. If you've ever been to Israel... Um, I don't know if anybody has in here. Oh, no, Mike has. Mike was there with me. <laughs> Mike and I were there uh, several years ago. Uh, the area around Sodom and Gomorrah, what's everywhere? It's, it's near the Dead Sea. Just nothing. It's absolutely zero. And everything is covered with thick, chalky salt. Uh, apparently, you know, where the Dead Sea had kind of receded over the years or whatever had happened there, the, the, the Dead Sea is extremely salty. And um, you can kind of see why it says she turned into a pillar of salt. I mean, there's, there's pillars of salt literally everywhere in that area because the salt you know, buildup has just made huge rocks of salt. Um, and she became, a part of the, she became a part of the landscape because she could not get away from the city that God was calling her to get away from. And then finally, this one's a little harder to see, but this crazy business that happens at the end of the story with Lot and his daughters, just crazy. In a way, you kind of see it there too, a hesitation to leave Sodom. Um, It seems, though, that in his daughters, what you have is not a hesitation to leave Sodom, but a hesitation to let Sodom leave you. Um, You can get out of Sodom quickly, but it's hard to get Sodom out of you once it gets in you. You know what I mean by that? Uh, these girls, it seems like they had been enculturated in Sodom's culture. This very sexually permissive, sexually pushy, uh, very materialistic. Uh, Ezekiel says it was very greedy. He says one of the reasons why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed was greed. And it seems like they're there. They're in the hills, they're looking around, there's no man, there's no way to carry on the family line, which was the way for women to wealth back then. That's the only way to wealth back then for women. Different now, but back then it was that way. And so they do the unthinkable. Uh, they pull a Sodom-like action towards their father. Their father apparently had been enculturated a bit too because, yeah, I mean, when you get so drunk you don't even know that's happening, you're really drunk. And that happened two nights in a row, apparently. So Lot, you know, Lot and his daughters have been in Sodom way too long. And in some ways, even though they escaped, they weren't allowing the Lord to let Sodom get out of them sufficiently. And this story is told in a negative way. So this is a great example of how sometimes people say, well, people in the Bible did it. Like, for example, uh, <laughs> polygamy, right? Uh, people you know, will say, well, Abraham had many wives, and David had like a thousand wives or whatever he had, you know, crazy number of wives. Isn't that, doesn't that show that it's good? Nope. The people in the Bible did a whole bunch of things that weren't good. And this is a great example of that. Lot and his daughters did not do good here. It was completely wicked and unrighteous. And yet, why is it told? It's told to show us how dangerous it is to make peace with sin. 
Uh, Lot and his family had tried to make peace with sin for years by, by living in Sodom. And in the end, it bit them. Even though they were saved from the destruction, it still bit them because morally they had been degraded. And uh, the next story, by the way, that we'll see next week, Abraham is the contrast. Because in, in, in Genesis 20, right after Lot and his daughters act wickedly, Abraham and his family stand up to protect the sanctity of marriage. And God stands up to protect the sanctity of Abraham and Sarah's marriage. And so there's this like contrast going on in this part of the story. Lot went bad. His, his marriage and his life was just shattered because he gave in to sin. Abraham, who tried to stand apart, Abraham had uh, a marriage that was healthy and was kept. I mean, it was kept by the power of God. We're going to see next week Abraham wasn't innocent either. He wasn't 100% righteous as no one is. But nevertheless, his marriage and his sexual life was maintained with purity and faithfulness. And so, y'all, I think we have to read this story and think about where are the dangers of worldliness for us. Um, It's not something that we talk about as much anymore in the church, like worldliness. Just this concept of Christians being in the world, and instead of just being in it, we become of it. We become like it. We try to give in to it. We blend in too much. That is a real danger. And one of the ways that becomes dangerous is it numbs you to the reality of judgment. It numbs you to the reality of judgment. Um, Just imagine it. Lot's daughters knew, they had to have known, why Sodom just got destroyed. Right? And yet, they do the same thing again. Wow. You know? Yes. And, um, Ham. Ham. Yep. Ham. Ham. Yeah. That's right. Similar. And yeah. Yes. That's correct. Yes, exactly right. Yep. Very, very true. God's judgment may be delayed, but it's never deferred. Ever. You know, and that's really key to understand. It's never put off forever, it's, but it, it can be delayed. Um, but it's never put off forever. That's a sobering thing, but a real thing about our God. Very just. Uh, we need to think about that. We, we need to think about how blending in with the world might not be the best idea, you know. There are ways in which we're going to be the same as everybody else because we're humans. We live in our society. And not everything about our society is bad, right? But, but we got to be careful to identify those areas that are unjust and stand apart and different and be, diff- be bold enough to be different. Um, I sometimes say we need to make Christianity weird again. <laughs> you know, it's okay that Christianity, part of being a Christian is to be weird in the world's eyes. Now, I don't think it's truly weird. It's just weird to the world. Uh, just like Lot telling his sons-in-law, hey, judgment's about to come, and they thought it was weird. Right? 
Um, you've got to learn how to be comfortable. Jesus was comfortable being rejected of men, and, and we have to know how to do that as well. Very, very important. Now, lastly, in the midst of all this judgment, God shows himself faithful to his people. And, and I printed out for you verses 27 to 29, and think about it. Why did God save Lot? Lot is a mess. Obviously, Lot's wife was a mess, and obviously Lot's daughters were a mess, and the sons-in-law were even more of a mess. Why did God save Lot? Look at verses 27 to 29. It tells you. God remembered Abraham. The story um, that we looked at last week, Abraham interceded. For Lot and for Sodom. And here God remembered the prayer that Abraham prayed, and for Abraham's sake, he spared Lot. Now, I'm not saying that Abraham is Jesus, because he's not. Abraham was a sinner too who needs a Je- he needs Jesus, just like you and I do. But I'm saying Abraham is a I'm gonna use the word type of Christ. Okay, he's a type of Christ. The word type in literature means um, some, uh, some uh, other person or thing that corresponds in significant ways with another thing. Okay, it has a likeness and a similarity. It reminds you of it almost as like a foreshadowing of what's to come. And Abraham is like that. He's a type of Jesus. Here is someone who in the midst of judgment is standing, even though Abraham has been declared righteous by God, he's standing on behalf of the unrighteous. The righteous guy is going to bat for the unrighteous guys. And as he stands and intercedes in their place, God sees it, remembers it, and honors it by saving the unrighteous one. And so in Romans 4, it says God justifies the ungodly because the godly one, Jesus, died for sinners. So what we need is is an Abraham, but someone greater than Abraham. Uh, When we hear the, the message of judgment coming, when we hear the message of God's justice being never completely deferred, only delayed, and nothing ever escapes his notice, that is justifiably scary. That is something that ought to humble every one of us if we take it seriously. And yet, what God has showed us in the gospel is not only is he planning to come with judgment, he's also coming with substitutionary grace and mercy. He's coming with substitutionary atonement. A sacrifice has been offered in the place of us. Jesus Christ stands now interceding for us before the Father. So that when God looks out over the world, which he is saving up, the Bible says, for the day of fire, he sees his people, and like he saw Lot, he protects us. He commits to keeping us from judgment. Do you know when a... a, uh, a space shuttle or a rocket goes into space, it's kind of a marvel that when it crosses through the atmosphere, it doesn't burn up. In fact, there are times that it has, actually. There are space shuttles that have tragically done that because there was a flaw in the outside. Do you know what it is that keeps the space shuttle or the rocket from blowing up going through the atmosphere? What's that? 
It's a heat shield, and you know what it's made out of? Ceramic. Made out of ceramic. And so it's kind of fragile, I guess, but, but it, it's the perfect thing to shield from heat. Ceramic is very good with insulation, extremely good. And so there's ceramic in certain parts or places of the rocket that when it goes through the atmosphere, it, it takes the heat for this, the spaceship so that it can safely cross over that boundary. Now, I want you to think about that. One day, everybody's going to pass through fire. Standing before God, we're going to pass through fire. If you don't have the ceramic heat shield of Jesus Christ and his righteousness over your life, you have no chance. You you stand no chance. But if the heat shield of the righteousness of Jesus and his cross is covering you, you will make it through. You will not be condemned. You will not be burned up. You'll be rescued. And even better, I mean, all Abraham could do was get him out of a city that burned. Abraham couldn't fix their wicked heart. We see that, right? I mean, their wicked heart keeps on doing wicked things. But Jesus Christ actually can change that too. And so he comes and he not only covers you with a heat shield, but he changes you so that not only do you get out of Sodom, but the Sodom can get out of you, the Sodom can get out of me. We can become more and more purified so that we are not continually turning back to the same sins. Now that's a struggle, that's a battle. We're going to all battle with it. We're going to all fall sometimes and have to ask for grace over and over again. But here's the promise, the grace will be given. The grace will be given every time. God will cover you every time with his son. God will change you. You do not have to blend in with the world, and you do not have to be destroyed with the world. There is a way of salvation. That's the gospel. There is a better and greater Abraham who stands on behalf of us lots and our families. The great thing about Christianity is grabbing a hold of that Abraham and his, the hems of his garments. Grab a hold of Jesus and don't let go. Amen?